Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Well, hello to everyone, and Happy New Year to all of you. You know, this past summer, we were walking around downtown Franklin near where we live here in Tennessee with some friends who were visiting from out of state. Those friends were looking for some gifts to take back home. So while everyone was inside of a store, I just kept strolling on down the sidewalk. As someone passed by me walking in the other direction, I I happened to glance up at him and he gave me a quick smile. A moment later, I realized that it was a certain TV and music celebrity, or at least I was pretty sure it was. As I turned around to look behind me, he was quickly disappearing into the crowd of people walking around downtown. At that point, everyone came walking out of the store that I was with, and so I told them who I thought I saw. One of our friends said, well, you should have turned and walked after them just to see if it was him. And I replied, well, yeah, but I don't want to come off like some celebrity stalker. They responded, well, now you'll never really know. And I thought to myself, doggone it, they're right. I never will know. Well, as we return to our series in Revelation and to chapter 10, we have somewhat of a similar situation. John the Apostle saw an amazing sight, a remarkable angel coming down from heaven to the earth. But wait a minute, was it actually an angel that he saw? Or was it, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let's read what John wrote here in chapter 10, picking up in verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried out with a loud voice, like when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. After that, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders have uttered and do not write them down. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, that there should be no further delay. And in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Having looked at the seven seal judgments and then the first six trumpet judgments, we now find ourselves at another interlude here in chapter 10. As this chapter develops, I think it's pretty clear that this interlude is a pause of somber reflection for what is still about to come upon the unsaved people of the world. In terms of the seven-year tribulation, we're now approaching the midpoint. And coming back to our discussion of whether John saw a mighty angel or the Lord Jesus, well, let's talk about that for a few moments. Let me begin by saying that while no detail in the book of Revelation is unimportant, The identity of this person is not, you know, critical or crucial, and the focus really is more on what the message from heaven meant. 
And eventually, when we get to heaven, we'll learn for certain whether this was an angel or Jesus. In contrast, I'll probably never know if the person I saw in downtown Franklin was who I thought it was. Although, the celebrity that I thought I saw has professed to having a saving faith in Christ, so when we all get to heaven, maybe I will find out. He may walk up to me in heaven and say, hey, brother, I smiled at you in Franklin and you didn't even respond. On the one hand, then, many Bible commentators and Bible students believe that this person that John saw coming from heaven is Jesus, and not without good reason, since uh, some of the descriptions line up with what we've read about Jesus elsewhere, especially his face being bright like the sun and his feet being like pillars of fire. Along with that, setting his feet on the sea and on the land speaks of authority. Even the cloud and rainbow are connected to what we've read earlier in Revelation about heaven and the throne. But then other commentators and students believe that John is describing an actual angel here, which happens to also be my opinion. Let me briefly share some reasons why. First of all, John calls him an angel, and it's the same normal Greek word used for angel dozens of times in Revelation. Jesus has many titles, but he's never referred to as an angel in this book or in any other New Testament book. Secondly, John describes this person as another angel, and that Greek word literally means another of the same kind. Therefore, this would be another angel, just like all the other angels that we've been reading about in Revelation. Thirdly, in verse 5, this angel raises his hand towards heaven and swears an oath by God in heaven who is eternal and the creator. So that points to this angel appealing to the divine authority of God. And by the way, one writer, um, actually um, Ray Steadman, states that the traditional practice of raising the right hand in court and swearing an oath to tell the truth as a witness originated from these very words here in Revelation chapter 10. Fourthly, I would point out that there is no prophecy, listen, or teaching in the entire Bible stating that Jesus will descend from heaven to the earth at the midpoint of the tribulation. The only appearance of Jesus in the tribulation will be at his second coming at the end of the seven years. So putting all that together, my personal conclusion is that John was describing what verse 1 tells us, another mighty angel. Back in verse 2, this angel has a book in his hands, and so the question becomes what that little book is. Some believe that it is the original scroll from heaven that had the seven seals which Jesus will open up. However, the Greek words for scroll in chapter 5 and this little scroll here in chapter 10 are somewhat different. So it may be a portion of the original scroll, or perhaps it's a separate smaller scroll. And what it appears to have on it is a description of the remaining judgments against the unsaved world. That conclusion is based on what we now start reading here in verse 8, so let's look at that together. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is opened in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And so John says, I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And the angel said to John, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will taste as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But after I had eaten it, it became bitter. 
And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Well, John experienced, I guess, the epitome of what we might call a bittersweet experience. And we've all been part of bittersweet experiences in life. As a pastor, I've presided over many, many funeral and memorial services for believers. And it's always bittersweet because while that person's death and departure brings sorrow and grief, it also brings joy in the knowledge that they are now in heaven with Jesus. And with that, we as believers will see them again. As I oftentimes like to share at the services of believers, those who live in the Lord never see each other for the last time. Here in this passage, John eats the little book and it tastes sweet in his mouth, but then turns bitter in his stomach. I think this would be the believer's reaction to the impending judgments of God against a rebellious and unsaved world. You know, God punishing evildoers, avenging his children, and defeating the forces of Satan is certainly very sweet tasting in our mouths. We yearn for Christ to make every wrong right and to return and establish his kingdom. But then the realization of all those unsaved people suffering and dying and being eternally separated from God makes it all turn bitter in our stomachs. And so ultimately, we trust in a holy, loving, and righteous God. Now, before we continue on, let's briefly chat about verse 4, where John hears seven thundering voices, but then is immediately instructed by God to seal up the words of what he heard. A little confusing because the word revelation means to reveal, and yet this particular revelation is sealed up. So what did John hear, and why was he instructed to conceal it? Well, obviously, we don't know what was said because it's sealed. But even so, thunderings throughout the book of Revelation are associated with judgment coming from heaven. So I think it's reasonable to conclude that the thunderings are speaking details about the remaining judgments. And perhaps those details are so severe and sorrowful that God kept John from recording them. That's just a thought. It's helpful to note that God also told Daniel in the Old Testament to seal up a portion of his prophecy as well. Well, this brings us now to the 11th chapter, so let's pick our reading back up in verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given over to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give my power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These witnesses have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they also have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord Jesus was crucified. 
then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and will not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God will enter them. They'll stand on their feet and great fear will fall on those who see them. And they will hear a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And the two witnesses will ascend to heaven in a cloud and their enemies will see them. In the same hour, there'll be a great earthquake and a tenth of the city will fall. In the earthquake, 7,000 people will be killed and the rest will be afraid and will give glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Well, I've waited until now to mention that my message title is The Three Witnesses. Most of us are familiar with the two witnesses that we just read about here, but as we discussed in chapter 10, John also told us about what he saw and heard. Therefore, John is also a witness. A witness. Here we read first about the Jewish temple in verses 1 and 2. And the first thing that should leap off the page at us here is how we're reading about a Jewish temple in the tribulation period. Ever since AD 70, when the Romans destroyed the second temple, there has been no temple in Jerusalem. In fact, they didn't even possess their homeland again until 1948. So historically, the first Jewish temple was built during the reign of King Solomon, the son of David. It's oftentimes referred to as Solomon's temple. But in response to Israel's continuous disobedience and idolatry back in those days of the Old Testament, God allowed the Babylonians to invade Israel and to destroy the temple. After their 70-year captivity in Babylon, Israel, the Jews, returned to their homeland and they built the second temple. Years later, when Herod became the ruler over Judea, he had that temple expanded, and so it's sometimes referred to as Herod's temple, though I much prefer to call it the second temple. Hey, Herod was no friend of God or of the Jewish people. Then, as I just mentioned, God allowed the second temple to be destroyed by the Romans, AD 70, as a result of their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. So here we are now, over 1950 years later, and throughout the years, the question has oftentimes been asked, will the Jewish people ever rebuild their temple? And the answer is biblically, definitely, yes. Not only does the Bible make this clear as we read here, but preparations have been made in Israel. They've been ongoing for years, and they're ready. Israel is eagerly awaiting their opportunity to rebuild. So how will that opportunity come about? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. As we oftentimes talk about, the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. It could happen at any moment. At some point afterwards, as we read in Daniel 9.27, the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel for a period of seven years. Uh, That soon-coming Middle East peace pact will include allowing the Jewish people to rebuild their temple and return to their Old Testament system of animal sacrifices. Now, why would they do that, you might wonder? Simply because, again, the majority of Israel today continues to reject Jesus as their Messiah. They're still waiting for and looking for their Messiah to come. 
In the meantime, once the temple is rebuilt, they will return to their Old Testament practices of animal sacrifices as a way to maintain their religious relationship with God. Now, let me take a quick moment to say that the current Middle East conflict is a ripe recipe for what might be cooking. The latest horrific set of circumstances that took place in October when Hamas terrorists brutally attacked Israel has put the entire Middle East on edge once again, and that continues to this day. So if the rapture were to occur, it would allow for the Antichrist to suddenly emerge on the world scene with a brilliant Middle East peace plan. Not only would Israel get what they want to build the temple, but others in the area would get what they want and voila, peace in the Middle East. But as we've already been learning, it will be a false and short-lived peace. But even so, Israel will have her third temple. Now, the only acceptable place for Israel to rebuild their temple, the only place they would do so is up on the Temple Mount where the previous uh, two temples stood. However, the Muslim Dome of the Rock sits up there with a small mosque off on the south side. So how in the world would the temple get rebuilt up there? Well, the Temple Mount is in the shape of a rectangle with an area covering about 35 acres, and in the center is the Dome of the Rock with the gold top. Now, to the north of the dome is a fairly large area of open space. Jewish scholars have determined in recent years that the actual holy place of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, including, you know, the Holy of Holies, all of that, would have been located in that particular open space. And not only that, but the spot lines up directly with the eastern gate coming from the Mount of Olives where Jesus would have walked through into the temple on Palm Sunday. And Ezekiel 45 also indicates that Messiah will enter through the same gate at his second coming. So putting all that together, a likely scenario would be that the Antichrist peace plan allows the Jews to rebuild their temple on that empty space on the Temple Mount. And since walls are used quite extensively over there to maintain separation between groups, a wall could easily be put up between the newly built temple and the current Dome of the Rock. I think it really makes a lot of sense. And when you toss in how the Jews are ready to rebuild right now and how the rapture is looming on the horizon, well, I think all the pieces are just about in place for the tribulation to get started. Hey, I'm not a date setter, but any Christian with an open Bible and an open eye can see how close we really are. Here in verses 1 and 2, John is instructed to measure the temple, the altar, and the people worshiping there. Now, I want to note that the Greek word here for temple is not the word that would describe the entire temple complex. Instead, it's a word used only in reference to the holy place, a much smaller area which included the holy of holies. Also, the act of measuring here signifies evaluation, and in this case, God is evaluating the worship. So then John is instructed to measure the altar, which refers to the brazen altar in the courtyard directly in front of the holy place, and that's where the animal sacrifices were brought to be slaughtered. So God is telling John to measure the holy place, the altar, and then to measure or evaluate the worshipers. Sadly, these Jewish worshipers are reverting back to the Old Testament system. 
As further confirmation of this, Daniel 9.27 tells us at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And so these Jews are not worshiping God as New Testament believers, but rather as Old Testament Jews who still haven't accepted Jesus as their Messiah. But the good news is that many of them will turn to him in the second half of the tribulation. Also notice with me in verse 2, John is instructed not to measure the area outside of the newly rebuilt temple, and this could very well be referring to the Dome of the Rock and the mosque on the other side. This would be the area given over to the Gentiles or the non-Jews. At the end of verse 2, we read that the holy city, referring to Jerusalem, will be trampled underfoot for the second half of the tribulation, the next three and a half years. The trampling underfoot will be done by Antichrist and his armies. As Daniel prophesied and Jesus reiterated, Antichrist will break his seven-year agreement with Israel at the midpoint of the tribulation and will take over the temple. He will be committing what Daniel and Jesus both called the abomination of desolation. And as we'll see in chapter 13, the false prophet will use his demonic powers to cause the remaining world population to worship the Antichrist by worshiping his image inside the temple. In the meantime, the Jewish people will finally recognize that they've been duped and deceived by the Antichrist and they will flee into the wilderness. Great persecution will follow them, but so too will great salvation. Now coming to verse 3, we begin reading about the two witnesses. You know, from Noah in the flood, to Lot in Sodom, to Elijah on Mount Carmel, to John the Baptist in the wilderness, and all the way to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists in the tribulation period, God always leaves himself a witness. And with that is the biblical principle of how truth shall be established and confirmed in the mouth of two witnesses. Now, we're not given the identities of these two witnesses, but even so, we are given quite a bit of information about them. In verse 3, God declares that he will give his power to his witnesses. This refers to the same Holy Spirit witnessing power that Jesus spoke of to his disciples on the Mount of Olives just before his ascension. The Greek word uh, here for witnesses is martus, from which we get our English word martyr. It appears that the ministry of these two witnesses will be focused primarily in Israel and around the city of Jerusalem. In contrast, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that we met back in chapter 7 will minister all around the world. The ministry of these two witnesses is to prophesy for 1,260 days or three and a half years. Their message will be twofold, warning people about the judgments still to come as well as proclaiming the gospel and exhorting people to turn to God by faith. The fact that God describes their ministry in terms of days rather than months or years, I think might be emphasizing how they will not be preaching periodically, but rather each and every day for three and a half years. Like the prophets of old, these two witnesses will be dressed in sackcloth. Uh, the material is similar to uh, material used for gunny sacks. It's heavy, coarse material. In the Old Testament, it symbolized mourning for sin and repentance and humility. The next description of these witnesses in verse 4 is that they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. 
It's worth noting that the oil produced from olive trees was used to light the lamps on the lampstands, which provided light. So this wording may speak of how these two witnesses will be God's light to a very dark world. In verses 5 to 6, we also read that God will protect and preserve his two witnesses during their ministry. If anyone attempts to harm them, fire will proceed from their mouths and devour their enemies. Now, before we start getting a mental picture of Godzilla stopping up and down the streets of Japan, this is not to be taken quite so literally. In keeping with previous examples in Scripture, this would mean that these two witnesses in God's power would call down fire from heaven, as well as commanding the rain not to fall, turning bodies of water into blood, and calling down various plagues. Which brings us now to a discussion as to who these two witnesses might be. Pastor John MacArthur once said, These are two of my favorite people in the whole Bible. I don't even know who they are. Even so, there are strong similarities here to Moses and Elijah, which, by the way, is who MacArthur believes they are. <clears throat> now, there have been other suggestions, such as Enoch and Elijah, since they were the only two people in the Bible who went directly to heaven without dying. Hebrews 9.27 reminds us it's been appointed unto a man once to die. So some have suggested that these two witnesses are Enoch and Elijah, who will finally die as martyrs in the tribulation period. Personally, I don't find that theory very compelling. Other than Enoch being taken up to heaven without dying, there's really no other reason to think that he might be one of the two witnesses. On the other hand, a very strong case can be made that these two witnesses might actually be Moses and Elijah. Here's several reasons why. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we read that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus and spoke with him about his death while seeing his future glory. When the resurrected Jesus was speaking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, there in Luke 24, we read that beginning at Moses and the prophets, Jesus expounded to them the things concerning him. And as we know, in the Old Testament, Moses represented the law, while Elijah represented the prophets. And then there are the miraculous works here in verses 5 and 6 that bear such a striking similarity to the ministry powers of Moses and Elijah. Calling down fire, for example, took place in the ministries of both men. For Moses, one of the ten plagues against Pharaoh and the Egyptians was the hail mixed with fire which came from heaven. And later on in the wilderness, fire came down from heaven and consumed a group of 250 men who were joining in a rebellion against Moses. And with Elijah, we remember the very familiar and well-known encounter with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, where fire came down from heaven. The end of verse 5 here declares that anyone who wants to harm these two witnesses must be killed in the same manner, which means that God will supernaturally kill anyone who wants to stop them or tries to stop them. It's God's version of the witness protection program. The similarities don't end there, and in verse 6 we read that these witnesses have power to keep the rain from falling, and that certainly points to Elijah Remember how he declared to wicked King Ahab that no rain would fall except at his word. And oh, by the way, it didn't rain on the land in Elijah's day for three and a half years, exactly the same length of ministry for the witnesses here in the tribulation. They will also have the ability to turn water into blood, just as Moses did in the first plague. And 
Then verse 6 tells us they'll be able to strike the earth with all sorts of plagues, which, again, Moses had done back in Egypt with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. One final piece of support for Moses and Elijah being these two witnesses is found at the very end of the Old Testament, at the very end of Malachi's prophecy. In the final three verses, Malachi includes these words of the Lord. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. How interesting that the final words which close the Old Testament make clear reference to both Moses and Elijah, who then appeared in the New Testament in the Gospels with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The bottom line is that no one except God knows for certain who these two witnesses will be. I mean, God could raise up two witnesses from among the tribulation believers, just as he will do with the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. In verse 7, we read that no matter how often people attempt to kill the witnesses, and I'm sure it will be often, it will always meet with failure until their ministry has been completed. Finally then, they will be killed after three and a half years. The Antichrist, who is called the beast for the first time here in Revelation, will be allowed by God to kill the two prophets. This will undoubtedly go a long ways in generating global support for this satanic leader as he will finally rid the world of those two menaces to society. Or at least it will appear that he does. In verse 8, their bodies lay in the streets for three and a half days as Antichrist will not allow them to be buried. The intentional act of not burying a deceased body is intended to bring shame and disgrace. Now, we know that the city where the bodies will lay is in the streets of Jerusalem because the end of this verse tells us it's the same city where our Lord was crucified. The very streets where Jesus was savagely dragged to his crucifixion will be the very same streets where the bodies of his two witnesses will lay dead and desecrated. Things will have gotten so bad in Jerusalem that God calls it Sodom and Egypt, spiritually speaking. Sodom, the Old Testament city synonymous with perversion, and Egypt, the Old Testament city synonymous with idolatry. We read in verse 9 that everyone around the world will see the dead bodies of those two witnesses in the streets, and this is what makes studying the book of Revelation so relevant and timely in these last days. Here we have an example of how just a few decades ago it would have been considered impossible for the entire world to witness a single event like what we read here. But thanks to satellite technology, the world has shrunk down to a much smaller place. Today you have the world in your living room. Within moments of global events, television networks are broadcasting live around the world while social media is blowing up your cell phone. In the meantime, a new satanic holiday will suddenly emerge as we read in verse 10, and it will create a worldwide celebration that rivals Christmas. This is the only time that people on the earth rejoice during the tribulation when God's two prophets are killed. All around the world, people will be celebrating, rejoicing, and even exchanging gifts. It's very likely that the Antichrist will go on his global television network and declare to the world that these two men have been responsible for all of the chaos and catastrophes on earth, but now they're finally dead. Therefore, happy days are here again, and everyone should party like it's 1999. 
Imagine the whole world full of mostly unsaved people celebrating a new holiday that's based on the death of God's two faithful witnesses. And then imagine God in heaven, on his throne, looking down upon the earth and watching this celebration. What will God's response be? Well, after three and a half days, God will raise up his two witnesses from the dead. Those who are under the influence from partying are undoubtedly going to sober up very quickly. You know, Lazarus was in the tomb for four days and Jesus raised him from the dead. And here, after three and a half days, suddenly and quite unexpectedly, the two witnesses will come back to life. We read here that when God calls his faithful witnesses up to heaven, their enemies will watch them go up. By the way, if Elijah is indeed one of the two witnesses, it will be the second time that he'll be raptured up to heaven, once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament. In verse 13, we read of a great earthquake that will rock Jerusalem, causing a tenth of the city to fall down and killing 7,000 people. Then we read that the remaining people will give glory to the God of heaven. Now, That statement has prompted many commentators to wonder if this is referring to genuine repentance or is this simply a recognition that this is the hand of God. I suggest that it's probably both, genuine repentance for some and nothing more than recognition for most others. What we do know is that according to Zechariah's prophecy that the eyes of the Jewish people will be opened up, especially in the second half of the tribulation, and they will finally recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And what a great and wonderful day that will be. In Jesus' name, amen.